welcome to the Spirit Seeker Hour. Spirit Seeker Hour is your chance to delve into the world of your inner spirit. The Spirit Seeker Hour is brought to you by Spirit Seeker Magazine. Go to www.spiritseeker.com to find out more. And now, here's Cindy Meyer. Meyer, and this is the weekly Spirit Seeker radio show brought to you by Spirit Seeker magazine and all of our wonderful advertisers and supporters of the of the magazine. And um, you can read Spirit Seeker online each and every month, and um, like over a year's where the magazines are archived at www.spiritseeker.com. We've been in print in St. Louis for um, right about 15 years now. Actually, it's almost 16, and then we've been in. The Kansas City area for four years. We've been in Columbia, Missouri for um, four and a half years, and most recently Chicago, a little over a year. And so the, the and then this month's magazine will also be um, shipped to Arkansas for Dolores Cannon's Transformation Conference, and will be in. Um, all kinds of things were all over the place. So I want to just mention a few of the events that Spirit Seeker is supporting. Um, the the first one that I want to mention is Dolores Cannon's 2012 Transformation Conference that will be in uh, Arkansas on uh, July the 15th, which is also the same date as Spirit Seeker's 27th Holistic Conference. We have been doing them since 1996 uh, and did two a year until 2006, and then we went to one a year. And this year we have um, amazing speakers, amazing music. John Tuhawks will be coming in, Richard Carr, um, on and on. Uh, Father Joshua is our keynote speaker. So that's in St. Louis. Then uh, I want to mention that we are a supporter of the Celebrate Your Life Conference in Chicago. This is our sixth year of supporting um, this conference. And amazing speakers is all I can tell you. You're in for a delight. There's a pre-conference on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The conference starts with yoga classes and meditation at 8 in the morning and goes till 10 that night. Um, and then on Sunday, it's another whole day of workshops. And Marian Williamson, Don Miguel and Jose Ruiz, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, Neil Donald Walsh, Barbara Marks Hubbard, Michael Bernard Beckwith, Carolyn Mays, on and on and on. Um, and our magazine, Spirit Seekers in Every Bag, and has been for six years. So CelebrateYourLife.org. Um, the other thing I want to mention is the Bhakti Fest. And the Bhakti Fest is a first-ever event in the Midwest. Uh, it's always been California way, and this is Kirtan, devotional chanting, 30 yoga classes, 40 hours of devotional chanting, workshops with the top yoga uh, teachers from all over the world, and Spirit Seeker is a sponsor of this event. The magazine will be there for everyone to read. We're, you know, we're in the program guide, etc. And I will be interviewing some of the uh, the founder of the Bhakti Fest and some of the different musicians on June the 12th. And finally, before I bring our guests on, our last event that I want to mention is um, actually two. Sorry, Marianne Williamson will be in St. Louis for an all-day workshop. This is uh, the first time ever that she has been to St. Louis, and she's teaching a an all-day, as I said, workshop from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And that is on June 16th. And you can go to yogaspamag.com uh, to find uh, information on that event. And then Amici will be in Chicago. Um, they are. She's actually blessing Chicago with opening in, uh, a center devoted to her. 
so um, Spirit Seeker is very happy to be supporting Amachi's visit to the Midwest, and we have supported that the last few years. And some of you know her as the Hugging Saint. And then our Columbia thing that we are supporting is Dr. Effie Chow will be coming back and teaching a four-weekend Qigong um, workshop. And uh, you can read all about that in the June issue of Spirit Seeker magazine. Just go to spiritseeker.com. If you want to be part of our mailing list, we do not sell it. Just send an email to info at spiritseeker.com. If you favorite this wonderful radio show that you're hearing, then that helps us reach more people. You can favorite the show by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Cindy Meyer, C-Y-N-D-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Or go to the Spirit Seeker site, click on the blog talk icon on the left-hand corner, and it takes you straight to my page. Okay, analysis are finished. Now we get to the fun part. I have two guests today that um, I am so delighted to have as it, on the show. I am um, bringing on uh, Katie Conson miller and Suzanne Robertson. Are you there? Yes. I'm here. Hello. Okay, oh, okay, great. These two ladies are very, very, very involved in doulas and uh conscious childbirth so that you you have um as many pieces to the puzzle as you can possibly you know plan for and do it in a peaceful loving way and um what we're going to talk about today is childbirth throughout different cultures and history and how doulas have been um an important part of creating an atmosphere around the birth of a child um that just creates a wonderful entry for the child a wonderful celebration for um, the mother and or parents and or grandparents, et cetera, um, the whole family. So, uh, ladies, I'm so glad you're here. And um, whichever whoever wants to talk first, but basically I would just like to educate the listeners on what a doula is, how the two of you got involved in this, how it's changed, you know, and is continuing to change because, you know, it used to be kind of underground and you guys are very much out there, which I think is wonderful. So either whoever wants to talk first. <laughs> Uh, I, I'll go first. Uh, I, a doula, first of all, to me means um, helper. Uh, there's a number of different hats I wear during any given labor from um, somebody, something as simple as running to get water or snacks to um, really, you know, as people have at least told me, kind of making a difference between them really feeling like they just couldn't go on and, you know, ultimately successfully achieving the birth that they originally wanted. Um, I've been doing this about seven years. I got into it after having um, a hospital C-section that I, once I sort of researched and learned a little bit about modern obstetrical care, really felt like I I maybe could have avoided with um, someone who knew a little bit more about birth and how to help me face the challenges that I was dealing with in that particular labor. So that was how I got into becoming a doula, and I have found it incredibly rewarding, and uh, it really goes along with a lot of aspects of my personality, including feeling strongly um, about being guided by your intuition and uh, about the inherent power that women have to do anything they put their minds to. Now, this is Katie, right? Yes. I want to make sure. Okay. And um uh, and Suzanne, what what would you like to add to that? Um I I would like to add that um well I actually wanted to talk some about the history of of um of the profession um and uh and different sure. cultures but as far as myself, I've been a doula for 5 years. Um I got into it um just because I was very interested in studying the midwifery model of care. 
and um, learned about doulas after I started learning more about midwives. Um, and, of course, the, the training to become a midwife is much more long and involved, and the training to become a doula is a more reasonable place to start. So um, that, that's kind of how and why I got into it. I had already given birth um, five times myself before I first started learning more about natural birth. And um, I was just lucky to have never had a cesarean. I didn't realize until I learned um, so much more about how birth is done in America today how literally just incredibly lucky I was, and I think luck is the only thing to say um, that I was in and out of the hospital that many times with that many labors and births and never ended up under the knife. Um, Right. So, uh, uh, but as far as the history of the profession itself, I find that really interesting. The word doula actually um, comes from uh, the Greek, and, and that. Uh, it goes way back, and I can't give you a date, but um, the word uh, a long time ago was used to refer to basically just the the, the head uh, handmaiden, the, the the lady servant of the house who was the the senior servant, <laughs> the senior female servant, and so she was the one who, when the the woman of the household was giving birth, it would be that servant in the um, in, in the position of seniority, who would be the one who would um, attend her mistress there during labor. And so it, it literally really was a servant, not quite a slave, but a servant. And I really do view myself in that role when I'm working with a couple for their for their hospital birth. Uh, the nurses might have different ideas sometimes about specific things that they think I should be doing, but I am um, I'm just there for the parents. Um, to be by their side and support them in whatever capacity at all they want me um, they want me to serve. I really do look at it as very much a very humble, very service-oriented role. Um, I definitely work on trying to avoid um, unwanted cesareans, and I've, as Katie said, have heard many times from my clients that my presence definitely made a huge difference in um, how it actually went and how it how their quite sure it would have gone without me for comparing the the labor where I worked with them to their previous labors that they had done alone, that there was just no comparison. It was night and day. Um, uh, But the woman, um, the the role of a woman attending other women in childbirth has been, is ancient. I mean, birth was always surrounded by the women of the the, the village, the tribe, what have you. Um, A woman was never giving birth under medical care until the last two or three hundred years and was certainly never giving birth alone. It was her mother, her older sisters, her friends that were always there attending her. There might not have even been someone who would have even been referred to as a midwife unless the labor and birth looked like it was getting into complications, that a natural, normal labor and birth would just be attended by a group of women and that circle of knowledge um, was passed from generation to generation as far as how a normal labor and birth would go. Um, and it's been in recent years where you don't have that immersion in natural birth and you don't have that circle of women supporting you. In our culture today, that circle's been broken, that circle of knowledge has been broken. And so the doula is really trying to reestablish that circle of knowledge, passing knowledge about normal healthy, natural labor and birth from woman to woman. Well, and you know, I I was a nurse for many years, and I did two obstetrical rotations. And 
talk about a shock because I was like, you know, in my early 20s and, you know, just seeing baby after baby after baby born because I was in a municipal hospital and, you know, it was just, I mean, it was St. John's Mercy and they called it the baby baby hospital at that time because there were so many children born in the 60s, 70s, 80s into the 90s at this hospital um, that it was just kind of known as the little baby hospital. And, you know, it wasn't until I had had two children and I became fascinated with um, breath work and the consequences, you know, like, like not consequences, but, you know, correlating the conception womb and birth to a person's way they acted, um, they lived out their life. And oftentimes, you know, it was, it was this whole perinatal psychology, which in the United States it's still relatively not studied. I mean, it's studied some, right. but really when you go to Europe, it is just not uncommon at all to have the doctors much more educated and aware of, you know, when a baby's born. And, um, you know, Dr. Thomas Fournier, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, he was a French doctor who just went along with the with the Western uh, mind of when a baby's born, you know, you, like, turn him upside down, smack him, get him to breathe, cut the umbilical cord, and, okay, okay, the baby's here. Until one day this baby came out of the womb and stared him down. Oh, there's background noise somewhere. Um, um, at any rate, the, the baby stared him down in the delivery room, and that's, in that moment is when he realized, oh, my God, these babies have consciousness. Like, you know, a lot of times people just felt like a lot of the doctors and the way the delivery process is going, it's it's almost like a surgery, you know, very surgical, very sterile. And after that, he played music in his operating room. He did dim <laughs> lights, you know, and then, um, oh, gosh, Michael Gabriel, I think it was, he's the one who um, did all the hypnosis with with people and took them back when they were in the womb. And, you know, and they've done studies where people who heard certain classical music when they were in the womb, if they played that same music when the child was born or later, it would instantaneously calm the child down because it was familiar. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't have to attend very many births to watch a newborn baby, even when they're taken right away from mother, cut the cord, get them on that warming table, away from any human contact. Dad says one word and that voice that baby has been hearing all during pregnancy uh that voice that probably is often associated with mom feeling good and being you know taken care of and feeling relaxed that baby just zones in on that dad's voice turns their head locks eyes it's very obvious to anyone who spends any amount of time observing newborns that they are 100 percent there and experiencing everything with the same level of consciousness that an adult would, possibly not remembering it as well or, um, you know, reacting to it as strongly because they are so, their central nervous systems are not as fully developed, but they're 100% there and experiencing everything and being strongly affected by it, not just at birth, but prenatally as well. I think Dr. Bruce Lipton's work, I don't know um, if you're familiar with his work, but He's really, really changing. He's a neuroscientist, and he's um, he showed at this conference, at Celebrate Your Life conference, actually, um, a few years ago, he showed a, a, a newborn, or not a newborn, sorry, in utero infant, and mom and dad arguing. And they could mm-hmm. actually see the startle reflex of the baby jumping from, wow. the, the, from the angry voices outside the womb. And, you know, so many people just do not get how important 
everything is during, you know, and I love how on your websites, and we'll mention those in a little bit, you, you both have said, you know, to plan the perfect birth, you know, it takes a little bit of work. You have to interview people. You have to figure out who you want there, who you feel comfortable with. It's not just a lot of people just think, okay, then you have the baby, and then, you know, they don't think about all the pieces to it. And we're not educated that way in our culture. Right. So do you, um, I mean, you're mid-Missouri. I have known from people who have driven from St. Louis, Missouri to Columbia, Missouri to have their babies to be part of your center. Do you draw from, like, all over? Well, Columbia. It sounds like you're referring to the Columbia Birth Center, which is... um, was in operation for many years and, and is not currently in operation. Oh, I'm Katie, what were you gonna For a long time, um, Columbia had the only birth center in the state, and that did, was a large draw. Um, unfortunately, that center is no longer uh, operating here, and actually, specific to mid-Missouri, uh, one of the local hospitals, uh, which was well-known for being very natural birth-friendly, has recently uh, closed its labor and delivery uh, section. So a lot of women in the mid-Missouri area really uh, have much fewer choices than they did a few years ago as far as um, getting to places that are they're comfortable with having women birthing and laboring naturally. Uh, the two main hospitals that perform births in Columbia have very, very high rates of intervention. And actually, I was recently able to attend a friend of mine who lives in St. Louis at her birth. And, I, you know, they definitely still had all of the sort of invasions that uh, a natural birther would really be trying to avoid. But they really had a much better attitude as far as... Uh, you know, recognizing to treat uh, moms respectfully and treat her wishes respectfully, as well as, you know, basic things like allowing uh, drinking and food and water during labor uh, was something that was allowed in this particular hospital setting in St. Louis, uh, which is in Columbia. They are very, very strict about food and water during labor, which is uh, really unfortunate because it it really can make the difference between getting through labor Right. Uh, successfully without intervention and possibly needing to be rehydrated, needing to, feeling like you need pain relief because your body is just so lacking of nourishment. Um, you know, this is a policy as far as eating and drinking that was implemented in the 1940s uh, based on general anesthesia in the case of an emergency. Um, almost General anesthesia is almost never used today. And I just was reading a study the other day that was saying, you know, even if, there was going to be a complication based on eating and drinking and needing general anesthesia. It's, a, it's about seven out of every 10 million women right. would be experiencing those complications. So we literally have in place um, lowest common denominator policies to protect one out of a million, a one in a million chance of having something less than that, or, or even greater than that, one out of one point something million. Right. Um, so well, that was the Katie, twilight the, sleep. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Suzanne. Uh, oh, the twilight sleep. Yeah, that's. Um, that's that was the, the fashion in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, so the women want to remember. They want to remember the pain. I mean, what a laugh! I worked uh-huh. with these uh, cardiologists who did cardiac cats, and they. I'll never forget. There were two doctors from Turkey who used this particular thing with the cardiac cast, and they said this is exactly what women were given. It was morphine and scopolamine, and it was given to them so that it would split the minds. The scopolamine split the mind so you didn't remember the birth. And so then, and the right. whole the thing was... The scopolamine is an amnesiac. It's not a pain right. medication. Right. 
per se right. at all. It would just, anyway. Yeah, split the mind so they wouldn't remember anything, you know, any of the terrible pain from childbirth. And what it did, I don't know if this is true, but I have heard um, – theories that that is what we, what created our drug revolution, you know, in the 60s because so many of those babies were born with this huge dose of drugs, right? When they're born, they're like, "Oh my god." You know, they were they were they had the same thing. They had the same like morphine and scopolamine. Give me a right. break in a because it goes uh-huh. right into the baby's system. And so, um, that's correct. I've read along those lines as well. Robbie Davis Floyd in her book um, Birth as an American Rite of Passage, she that hasn't been it hasn't been researched enough to really have been proven with data, but it, but the, just the correlation is highly suggestive that the first generation that started being exposed to the narcotics and such with childbirth grew up to be the first generation. I mean, we're talking 40s and 50s. They grew up to be the right. first generation of young people that were heavily using drugs. And um, that is certainly highly suggestive evidence that giving our babies, these narcotics, and even with the epidural, they're getting a tiny bit of exposure, enough possibly to prime them to um, to that interest and that desire, just a tiny bit right. of addiction within their bodies that when they're exposed to it um, as young adults, that um, it's just much just harder to not go down that road. Right. Well, and it in, I think it goes along also with a cultural shift in ideas of that, you know, at one point if you uh, felt depressed, you know, maybe some people were not getting the support they needed to cope with that, but the attitude was you have to do something about that. You have to change your circumstances. You have to, you know, maybe exercise more, do things that make you happy. And now if you're feeling depressed, just take a pill. Oh, my God. They're doing it with so, kids. Exactly. I know. Exactly. You know, and and really and truly, there's there's just so many schools of thought on this, and, and it and it's really challenging because a lot of the happiness is not, um, you know, Shakti Gawain, you know, she said that this is a whole different train of thought, but she was saying that, you know, prosperity is an intrinsic internal state. Like some people might have millions and they still feel broke. Other people, you know, have enough to pay their bills and they're, and they're, they're like, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm fine. So happiness in our culture is so wired in with so many different things. And, you know, the, the ideal birth is just, you know, they, so many things, people get so excited about all the stuff that goes over the baby. They don't really, it's like almost like an afterthought about, oh, really, what's going to happen to delivery? And so I want to mention um, the website, uh, birthstrong.com, which is wonderful. It ha- and then I'm going to uh, also mention the other one is, um, well, let me start with this one first. On this website, it's great. It describes what is a doula, um, learning the truth about birth. And I I really like how you kind of, um, not kind of, how you explain that this is a process, you know, and you need to interview several possible caregivers. You know, um, whether you choose a doctor or a midwife, finding someone that you click with is really important. And, you know, it's really interesting. I interviewed pediatricians when I was pregnant my first time, and my my husband at the time was a doctor, and he was appalled. He says, what do you mean you're interviewing pediatricians? I said, you don't get it. I said, you don't get it. I said, who are the two most important people with this whole deal outside of us? I said, whatever happens at the birth and who's going to take over after that doctor leaves the room and it's all done. I mean, that person brings the baby in, but who? what if there's a complication? You know, God forbid. And he's like, but what do you mean you're interviewing? I said, you know what? If a doctor doesn't have time to sit down and talk to me and answer my questions, then do I really want them for the next 18 to 20 years to be my doctor for my child? And he was just like, oh my God, you know. I mean, he just didn't know what to think. So in, in my first OBGYN that I had, 
used, he called them labor coaches. He didn't call it a doula, but it was exactly what a doula is. But I think, you know, it was back, you know, in the 80s, and I think that they were, he was, you know, more scientific. And he was one of the first ones who did vaginal deliveries after cesareans. And he was highly criticized, you know. I mean, you know what an uproar that still is. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes, there's a lot of controversy about that. Yeah, and um, you covered that on your websites. I really, you know, the the so on this birthstrong.com, listeners, there's um, several suggestions for the process, and then the three top misconceptions about birth, um, and then the other site that I want to mention is the um, midmo doula resource group dot webs dot com. So that's m i d m o d o u l a resourcegroup.webs.com and on that site you will find you know what what um what a doula is what they do you know professional labor support how to contact the organization if you want help and you know we have we have lots of time here but I want to make sure we cover everything that um you know that the two of you would like to cover but I would kind of like if if you don't mind I'd like to go on this um, the three misconceptions about birth, because I, I think these are good topics. With unless you have another direction you'd like to go in right now. No, that's that seems really great. I mean, I I put those up there because I think those are probably um, maybe the only three things people know about birth before they've given done it themselves. Uh, you know, I, I a lot of my friends are are at the age of having babies now and. You know, it's interesting having worked with women so long, I'm seeing some of the same behaviors in my friends and that, you know, they'll talk to me about their doctor and, and that they, they don't, they don't exactly agree with everything or they don't like everything or some, you know, different details about their relationship with their doctor. And yet they don't seem, they don't seem like they want to change. They don't seem like they want to do that work of, of interviewing another care provider or, um, you know, even, possibly considering the alternative of of hiring a midwife and doing a home birth, even if that's something that actually kind of appeals to them. They're sort of hesitant to do that. And I think some of that comes from this idea that that labor is, is this horrible experience that you just, if you're lucky, will make it through by the skin of your teeth. And the only way to do it safely is in a hospital and if you don't have the interventions, the machinery and the IV and the highly trained, expensive healthcare professionals around you, that you'll be somehow making a less safe choice or putting yourself or your baby in danger. When the actual uh, facts, when you look at studies of, of home births uh, attended by midwives, uh, women are, are, are actually a lot safer uh, as far as complications and, and risks of, of interventions, uh, by going that route than going ahead and going to the hospital. It's just it's just so deeply ingrained that the hospital is where you go, even though it, was, it wasn't until maybe the 20s or 30s that the majority of births in this country took place in the hospital. Before then, you know, it was out of hospital settings. Um, you know, and and even then, when they first started going to hospitals, it was it was not the safest place to be because, they, you know, they were just sort of starting to figure out things about, uh, you know, germ theory and and antiseptic properties of of things and what that could affect. Uh, so, 
you know, this idea that labor is, is frightening and, and fearful and, and you have to be protected from it, it really is doing a disservice to pregnant women. It's not only attacking them psychologically, leading them to believe that there's something inherently wrong with them, that they can't possibly do this very natural thing without help, um, and then also misleading them to think any intervention that their doctor suggests is actually for their for, and their best interest, when in fact a lot of routine practices like uh, electronic fetal monitoring, almost every hospital requires some portion of the labor be continuously monitored uh, with this fetal monitor when there's no statistical proof that that does anything except increase the amount of inf interventions. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was a study that was done, and I, I uh, believe I saw discussion of this on the DVD um, accompanying gentle birth choices, that there was... Um, that that one doctor went back and did a study of how many how many babies died during labor back when they used to just do intermittent monitoring with the handheld Doppler and how many babies they're saving now that they capture almost every single heartbeat on that that um, constant monitoring uh, device they have in the hospital and there was literally no difference there was no difference at all in infant survival rate. Um, back years ago when they used to do intermittent monitoring compared to now when so many places are doing constant monitoring, there was absolutely no difference. They were not saving more babies. The thing that was different is a lot more mamas were getting hurt. We were looking at a huge increase in uh, probably unnecessary cesareans. Yeah, I mean, you know, with internal monitoring, what happens, listeners, is this. You no longer have the ability to move around. You know, in England, they use birthing chairs because, um, you know, and some places in the U.S. use them, but basically it's gravity. It's, it's you know, you're, you're in a position where the baby is easier. I mean, that's why, you know, it's kind of a joke, you know, women in the rice fields of China just squatting down and having a child. Well, guess what? There's... There's a whole different thing with a baby coming when you're flat on your back and you have an internal monitor and you're hooked up to IVs. You know, it, you can't have the freedom to move around and have natural gravity with the baby starting to drop. And, and you know, it's it's very, it's just very different. But, you know, you do, I mean, with, with the doulas, just so the listeners know, the doula can be, um, you know, with a home birth, but the doulas can be hired to go to the hospital with you too. You know, I mean, this is your deal, what you want to create with birthing your child. You can do a doula and a midwife, am I right? Don't you have teams? Like sometimes you work together too, right? Oh, certainly, yeah. As, yeah. A, as a doula, I am able to attend home birth sometimes. Um, uh, people that are hiring a midwife for, for home birth are sometimes a little less likely to go ahead and hire a doula also, but a lot of times the midwife won't arrive until very late in labor. And so having a doula there um, uh, for all the comfort measures and support and encouragement when you're dealing with your labor on your own, <laughs> waiting for the midwife to arrive, right. Um, right? that can be a very good combination. Usually as doulas, we are actually hired for hospital births and, and not home births. That's what I. That's what I thought. And 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 it's not just wiping your brow. It's like okay, I'm just going to give my own experience. I was a nurse. I'd seen countless babies born, but it's different when it's you, you know. And and mm -hmm. you know, and I and my husband had had four children at the time, and he had never been. Well, one was adopted, but he'd never been at the birth of any of his kids. And so here, and I said, well, guess what? 
this one's going to be different. So, you know, he was bored with how long it was taking. So he's like, you know, I think I'm going to go up to the other hospital and make my rounds and see my patients. I'll be back. This is taking way longer than I thought. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And I said, you're not leaving until my mother gets here. I'm not going to be here alone. And, you know, and that was even with this, this, it, it was a labor coach, but I had to share her. She was like, because she was hired by the doctor and it was like an add-on on your uh, delivery price. Mm-hmm. But she was shared. So she was like in three rooms. Room. She wasn't just with me. She was with, you know, running around because, like, they would have, oh, I don't know, so many babies being born at one time. It was ridiculous. But, you know, it was just the way it was back then, and I didn't know any better. But I know that that doula is what got me through it, you know, because I had a I had a 9-pound, 7-ounce child, 23 inches long. And I kept saying, you know, and I went, this was before I knew a lot of the stuff. I went with an epidural, and I kept saying it's not working. It's not working. You know, yeah. this thing's not working. And the anesthesiologist was so overworked that particular evening that when she came in, she says, you're right, it's clotted off, but it's too late. You're in active labor. I said, what does that mean? I just like, you know, well, what? because I was all prepared for, you know. And she's like, what it means is you need to push and shove when they tell you, and that's it. There's nothing I can do. It's too late. So I had a natural childbirth accidentally, but actually, and and, and I didn't have the separation because afterwards there were 40 stitches that had to be done because it was this huge kid. And but you know what? It was a it was a blessing because I got to breastfeed right there on the delivery table, and I had this time that I would never have had with him. You know, they they let me keep him, and then my third one. You know, I was 42 when I had my third child, and, um, you know, it was it was a similar situation. I chose the hospital, but by then I was educated. I was so educated. I saw them wheel in the force-up machine, and I said, what is that? And they're like, <laughs> um, you know, it's the force And I said, get it out of here. I said, when the child's ready, it'll come. I said, you're not force-upping my kid into this world. And it was really right. interesting. They didn't know what to think because by then I was trained as a rebirther. I studied the consequences of birth and relationships and all the psychological things that went along with the whole delivery process. So I was an educated consumer. I was also eating on the fly because, you know, they wouldn't let you mm-hmm. eat. So I, right. and I knew I knew there was no way I was going to make it through all that without eating. And so, yeah. so I was sneaking eating. Can you imagine having to sneak to eat to keep your stamina up? So then and, I see the uh, whispering. We still deal with that in hospital births today that, that our, our mothers a lot of times have to sneak their, their nutrition. Oh, I know. Try, oh try it's the most common piece of advice yeah. 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 that and I give. There's just so much that goes on. And, you know, I mean, and so really there's so many things, and you have to be educated. But the more you read, and, and can you give some lists or some some suggestions for reading materials? Um, maybe they're on the website. I didn't notice. But, um is, are there if someone wants to have more of a a conscious uh birth is there are there some books that you would suggest to have them read oh certainly uh I'm a big fan of one called the Thinking Woman's Guide to a Better Birth uh it does a very good job of demonstrating uh what practices are overused why they are less uh beneficial than they might sort of be uh advertised as being uh, it's all very thoroughly researched. It's written by a woman whose absolute heart and soul is researching things, and she does an excellent job of really laying it all out there. Um, just basically more so that you can make your own decision than so you uh, feel compelled to choose anything, any one thing over any other. And I really like that one. Okay. Uh, Birthing from Within is another good one. 
I'm not remembering the author's name off the top of my head. Um, also, Ina Mae Gaskin, uh, I believe, has three books out now. Uh, she's a well-known midwife from the, the, the farm back in the in the 70s. Um, her book that is is best known as Spiritual Midwifery, and that's more focusing on home birth, uh, the way they they did birth here at the farm. Um, her her second book, I believe, is more applicable to modern people, you know, often dealing with the hospital setting, and that's Ina May's Guide to Childbirth. And I really appreciate her discussions in there of uh, most common hospital interventions that are going to be offered to you or done to you if you don't um, outright refuse them in a hospital birth. And she talks about the risks of all of them and potential benefits and which ones could be appropriate choices to use under certain circumstances or which ones you should absolutely avoid (laughs) completely, absolutely avoid regardless, and she talks about the research behind um, um, behind the risks of each of those things and, and why she's recommending to that it would be um, okay to consider some of those or to absolutely avoid some of them. Um, uh, Gentle Birth Choices is another good, for, good book, and I had mentioned already the uh, DVD that accompanies that is an excellent thing. Dads a lot of times don't have as much time or interest in reading the childbirth books, but um, usually you can get dad to sit down in front of an hour, hour and a half uh, little movie. And so that's an excellent one that I recommend dads watching. Of course, Business of Being Born, I recommend that my that my parents watch that as well. It's just an excellent expose in um, some of the financial influences behind the way things are done in hospital birth today. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I believe one of us referred a while back to, you know, you, you want to assume, you assume, you think that the doctor is making all of his suggestions and and decisions based on what's in your absolute best interest medically, but when you really look at the real data behind it, unfortunately, you, you can't really, you know, be guaranteed that that's the case, that there are a lot of other influences. The legal culture that we're in with the consumers um being too happy and malpractice insurance being high. Um, it's outrageous. The legal departments are really the ones that tell doctors a lot of the, the, the policies that the doctors need to have as far as their common practices and the way they do things, the decisions that they make, are completely dictated by the hospital legal department a lot of times. They're, they're practicing it. We're in a climate of defensive medicine, and that's across the board in medicine in America today that um, uh, that doctors are having. They're, they have got right. this culture, this, this the lawsuit culture has just really forced their hands so that they they have to practice with that what if I'm sued uh, right. scenario in the back of their mind at all times and then hence the, the term defensive medicine, that they're practicing medicine um, with with how can I defend myself in the courtroom being in the back of their mind at all times. And, you know, obviously it's, it's happening in obstetrics just as much as every other branch of medicine. And it really snowballs because they're worried about litigation, so they practice towards litigation, and the malpractice insurance goes up, so they have to take more patients to be able to pay their bills, so they have less time to spend with each individual patient, so the quality of care for every woman goes down. It's really, you know, it's fascinating when, um, I don't even know how I wrote this paper, but let me say, I don't remember, but I, I but I took all kinds of healthcare management classes uh, when I got my other degree after nursing, and 
one of the things that um, we studied the deliveries, uh, the well, the infant mortality rate in America is much higher, for, you know, for a developed country than most parts in um, other developed parts of the world. And part of well, it is Cindy, 40, 48th in the world is the most recent statistic that I've uh, heard. That is just 40- shocking. 47 countries worldwide that, that that keep more of their babies alive than America does today. And the last statistic I had heard just a few years before that was 23rd in the world. Jumping from 23rd in the world, plummeting, plummeting right. from 23rd in the world down to 48th in the world in just, I believe, 10 years, maybe 20 is is mind-boggling. It's it's horrific, and the um um and the, the only major change that's happened in America during that same block of time is the cesarean rate increasing, and and so again, it's not proven, but it's highly suggestive that that's the reason that the infant mortality rate is plummeting the way it is. Well, and and a lot of um. Japan is one of the ones with the lowest infant mortality rate, and that was Uh one of the countries that we studied, and we're like, okay, what's the difference? Well, here is the difference. A woman in Japan who becomes pregnant goes to, like, a clinic. I mean, even if you have, like, if you have a private doctor and you can do everything fine, but if you don't, the clinic that you go to actually pays for your bus tokens to get to Mm -hmm. and from your prenatal appointments. They make sure you're on vitamins. They make sure that, you know, they give you instructions on your diet. You actually, you know, no matter what your financial circumstances are, they honor the fact that they want the future of their country to, like, be healthy and, you know, I mean, so they take care of the women. It's like there's no one that is not allowed access to to good um, good care. And the other thing that I think does, that has influenced so much of the births in our country is we are one of the highest countries with this fertility. You know, like using fertility treatments with, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we're doing all the different things with, you know, like thousands and thousands of dollars. And sometimes it's two and three takes, and they still aren't pregnant, you know, with in vitro fertilization and so many of the different surrogate mothers. There's a lot more in the U.S. than other countries. Other countries, it's kind of like, okay, it didn't work, you know, we'll just adopt or whatever. There's much more of a scientific approach in the USA. And, you know... I don't know. It's just complicated, but but that's shocking that we have dropped that much. But it has to be the cesareans. That has to be a huge part of it because that complicates everything. Right. It does. Right. And the 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 statistics show. I mean, a woman is is two twice as likely to actually die in childbirth when she has a cesarean versus a vaginal birth. The well that's World Health Organization. That's even an elective cesarean, not just an emergency cesarean where you're diving in right. there fast to get that baby out. That's a completely careful, slow, planned out cesarean. She's still twice as likely to die. Right. And, I mean, it's still a very small percent, but it, it literally doubles. And, I mean, the World Health Organization has done a lot, a lot of research about this, and they recommend a 10 to 15% cesarean rate. And, I mean, specifically in Colombia, one of the hospital's cesarean rates is 60%. That's outrageous. That's and called, and that's, nationwide, yeah. it's 33%. It's more than double the what's recommended for the best outcome for mothers and babies. Right. And and I want to also point out, 15% is the rate for very high-risk women. Right. That include that that recommendation includes women who and babies who are high risk. Still, only 15% cesarean. 10% is supposed to be reflective more of the general population, but that 15% cap, it, it, it does include women who have, you know, whatever underlying issues or, or uh, dangerous things come up close to birth time. 
So listeners, what this means, I'm going to explain the difference, and you two jump in if, I, if I'm not explaining it very well. But in in the U.S. culture, if you um, have a cesarean for whatever reason, what happens is what's encouraged after that, say you have a second child, they schedule when they're going to have the baby because the the thought is in this country that if you've had a cesarean, which means, and what a cesarean birth means is the baby doesn't come down the birth canal. What happens is instead there's an incision made into the uterus and the baby is surgically removed from the from the uterus and then it's stitched back up. And the thinking is that that's too much stress. Once you've had that incision, the uterine wall does not heal well enough to be strong enough to have um, to have that much activity and strain on it with a clamping down when you have a vaginal birth, which is... Um, which is not the case in other countries. It, it's normally a surgical uh, cesarean section is only done, as Katie and Suzanne were both saying, if there's an extreme, you know, risk to the mother or child. But what happens is it's called CYA, cover your you-know-what, in this country with the high um, oh malpractice rates and everything else. So if a woman has any kind of anything, now there's a tendency, oh, we'll just do it cesarean, that's safer. And really, it's not. It's a myth. It's a. It's just. It's. It's not the truth. It's a myth that that you're safer having a cesarean. And so, and then the other thing is, is I had this, you know, client one time whose mother was a nurse. Was was you know she was my age and you know I'm in my late fifties and so her mother talked the doctor into inducing her so that she and her sister could have the same birthday. Can you imagine? Oh, and and, the well, and that's sisters. that's really reflective of what has what at least a portion of what has driven that cesarean rate up. It is not it is doctors who are practicing very defensively and who are too quick to think that they're in complete control of a situation and can go ahead and perform an invasive surgery with little without worrying about the risk. But part of it also is you know, we've become sort of a convenience culture. Right. We don't, you know, uh, we don't want to spend that much time with our children, really. We don't want to rearrange our lives uh, around being a parent when, in fact, that's really what the children need and that's what's best for them and that's what's best for the babies during birth. Uh, but a lot of women feel that there is no problem with scheduling an induction uh, or a cesarean for their own convenience or because they have a, a demanding job or because, you know, th- silly things like you were just talking about, their grandma, the mother's going to be in town for a short window oh, yeah. or anything oh, yeah. like that. It's outrageous. And I'll tell you, having worked with induced uh, people who have been induced, you know, the psychological implications are as follows. And uh, and this is research that has been done. It's not just in the U.S., but also um, England. The, the the doctors in England have worked with the rebirthers for years, trying in the perinatal psychologists. There's huge conferences they're, they're with perinatal psychologists in the the OBGYNs in Europe, it's much more common in, in Europe than the U.S., although we're starting to wake up a little bit. But this is what happens. When a child is induced, you know, normally when a child is born, the mother, you know, you have like an idea of when the baby's coming. And it's, you know, 365 days, 10 lunar months, et cetera. Um, it's all factored. There's a there's a formula, you know, that it's like, okay, well, based when we think this child was con- conceived, this looks like around the due date. And then you know, but what happens is the baby emits the hormone that triggers right. the mother's uterus to start 
you know, okay, it's time. But if the baby chooses, and normally it's the baby saying, oh, my, it's getting a little tight in here. Oh, gee, you know, like maybe maybe I need to lie. The baby knows. They're very Mm -hmm. wise. It's just, you know, they just know when it's time to start coming. And also when a baby comes early, they know that oftentimes the womb's not safe. Something's gone awry. Mm -hmm. And so... But the babies that choose get the natural massage of the vaginal walls. That's their first touch. You know, prior to that, they've been floating in this little, you know, halcyonic little universe of of everything's met. All they have to do is develop and grow and be loved and nurtured and everything's handled. And all of a sudden they know, okay, it's time. It's time. So what happens is when the baby comes down that vaginal canal, it's its first touch, and then out it comes. And that's why... What what these two ladies and the mid uh, mid doula resources are offering is, you can tell the doctors I want to play this particular kind of music. You can tell the doctors, you know, I want to have rooming in. Even if you know, one of the things in my thing was if, and I'm glad I had it in there. I said if my baby for some reason has jaundice, I want the baby in my room with the jaundice lights, you know, whatever the Billy Rubin lights, so that I can still have rooming in. I was one of the few that got that because I had like almost a 10-pound kid, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, but I had it all written into my birth plan. And the more you write into your birth plan, the more they already know, and they might say, oh, here we go. These are little weirdos. But you know what? Who cares? Because it's your birth. Mm -hmm. Bring bring cookies with your birth plan. The nurses like that a lot. They do. Seriously. They just like to know. Like, they, well, they like cookies they, and bring them to the hospital and say, here's my birth plan and here are the cookies that accompany my birth plan. It will be received better. I've only had a few moms do that, but what a difference. The nurse's attitude oh, yeah. was very different. Right. And the whole thing is that in most cases, doctors will honor it. And if they, you know, if they won't, you know, then then you probably are with the wrong doctor anyway. And, you know, it's exactly. interesting. I, I switched doctors at six months with my second one because, okay, first birth, here I am. I, I had it written in. No internal monitor unless there was a huge problem, but no, nothing, because I wanted to be able to move around. Well, and that was the doctor who had the the um, the doulas, and he had emergency surgery. Can you believe this? The morning I'm delivering, he's up on another floor. He had a double carotid endar- uh, endarterectomy, like the, his his carotid arteries just blocked off. So I had some. Oh, the doctor never. was under the knife himself. I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't understand That's what you're yes. saying. Okay, so he's like on a different floor. So I had some doctor I've never met, and all of a sudden I've got everything that was not in my birth plan, and that was the one where I had the natural childbirth at the end anyway. But I just uh-huh. looked at that, and so the so the second pregnancy i i said okay i said you are in town in september right he says yep i don't have anything scheduled it should be fine i i I know i'm like look you couldn't help it you know you couldn't have known you were gonna have emergency surgery but when i was six months he said oh by the way um i just wanted to mention this i will be presenting a paper at some conference in london and, and oh, if the baby hasn't come, we'll just induce the baby before I go so that you can and – I, and I looked at him and I said, you are kidding me. I said, remember when I agreed with you as my doctor? I said, you promised you'd be here in September. And he said, I know, but this 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 thing just came up, the speaking engagement. And, I, and he says, we'll just – I said, no, we won't just – I said, mm-hmm. I will be picking another doctor out, and I said, I do not expect to ever get a bill for anything for these six months. I'm sorry, but you didn't keep your end of the deal. Well, I went home, and my husband, once again, this is the same husband for the two, first two kids, and he was just appalled. He goes, what do you mean you told him not to send you a bill? I said, you know what? 
I said he didn't keep his end of the deal. <laughs> and he, uh-huh. he was just, he's like, what is wrong with you? I said, everything's right with me. I'm just not going to have this guy deliver my baby. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. right, right. you know, but, but if I wasn't a strong person or kind of had knew my way around the block a little bit, but this is why you guys with all of your resources, and you've seen it all. You've, well, I wouldn't say you've seen it all. I'm sure there are still surprises, but <laughs> but, but you're wise women. Mm. Well, I love the the aspect I love the most about the story you just told is that you treated that doctor like he was another human being who was performing a service for you. I think far too often we put doctors on a pedestal, and it's really to the detriment of everyone involved because the doctor is a human being perfectly capable of being wrong or making an error. And if we expect them to be perfect, then the stress on them goes up. Uh, the rate of people being displeased, dissatisfied with problems that occur and, you know, go resorting to litigation goes up and just in general we don't use our critical thinking when a doctor comes at us with a recommendation or any kind of advice because we just sort of dismiss any any uh, alternative views to the doctor because the doctor must be somehow superhuman and and perfect when in fact you know they really are it's like a mechanic for your body they have a, a lot of expertise and they should be respected for that, but you wouldn't just sign up for getting absolutely anything that someone who was providing a service for you suggested without thinking, is this really what I want? Is it really what I need? Is this the best value? Is this going to bring about the uh, the outcome that I want? Right. So I really love your your critical thinking there. Oh, I don't know, but it was just, you know, and and mainly I have to tell you, you know, studying so much about perinatal psychology is just really what woke me up. And, mm-hmm. you know, and having had the doula experience, even though they weren't, it was a labor coach, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't right. called a doula, but, but that's what it was. And so, listeners, I, I just want to, you know, give these websites again, and then I want you um, to, to give the phone number, because uh, we're getting near the end of the show, Um birthstrong.com, and then the other one is midmodularesourcegroup.webs.com. And um, there's a wonderful, wonderful thing on here with the doula services. It says interview several possible caregivers, use legitimate sources to gather information. Um, Many websites, you know, have a lot of uh, resources, but they're also trying to sell things attached to that, and um, that's not necessarily the right way to go. So it kind of guides you through that. The library is a great place. The books that were recommended during this interview are great. Um, the website has resources, and then communicate clearly with your partner and family. You know, like having had the first experience. You know, when I went in the second time, you know, they're like, "Well, you know, you're you're this far dilated. Do you want your epidural?" I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. I want to walk the halls." Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, and even though I did use the epidural, it was, it was, you know, by choice and with consciousness, you know, and, you uh-huh. know, and I don't criticize, I think however anybody wants to do it, but with consciousness and, and, right. and, you know, and, and, you know, you dialogue with your baby. I mean, the baby's not this uh-huh. thing that just gets popped out. The baby is a living conscious being and right. knows everything. There's a consciousness around these babies inside the womb and they know if there's stress and struggle and it's, you know, between parents, between doctor, et cetera. And the more you can get everyone aligned on the same page, which, you know, which means communicating clearly with family, with, the, with you know, the, the people on your team. You know, I mean, I'll never forget my third child. My mom was in the room. And 
when when I'm, I'll just never forget her holding her grandson. And this was probably, I know this was the only one out of all of her children. She and my mother had six children and, and all the grandchildren. This was the first one where she actually held my son, uh, you know, right after he was born. And he looked at her in the eyes and held onto her finger, just latched on and just, because he'd heard my mom all these months, you know, while I was pregnant. And he knew his grandmother's voice. And, yeah. you know, so the so the more you're involved, um, the better. And the more support you have, like even, in, like I was a nurse, I'd seen countless births. It's different. It's different when it's your own experience. And, you know, you can right. write your own ticket. So, so how do people reach you and do you do counseling and coaching rather over the phone? Like if someone's not in your immediate area, do you, can they pay for your services with coaching them through the process? I put that on my website actually as a possibility, or like I used to have it listed. That no one has ever taken me up on that as far as childbirth classes and 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 um, uh, customizing their education and and pregnancy support from a distance. But it is absolutely something that is a possibility if if someone if a listener is in an area where there aren't any doulas available, um, having some kind of support with getting educated about the process and just feeling empowered to make different decisions about your doctor in your birthplace. Okay, so this um, is good because yeah, this show has um, national and international listenership, as well as we we have people, you know, because the shows are archived. We have people who listen to it. You know, a lot of times it's not convenient to listen to it live at the seven o'clock Central Time. So we have people who we have a lot of like in between, you know, off hours limit uh, listening. So um, so Suzanne, please um, let's let's start with you. If you'll give your phone number and email or however you want to do it, however. Yeah. My phone number is 573-489-6209. Again, that was 573-489-6209. And my email is joyfulchildbirth at yahoo.com. Okay. And all and one she... word, joyfulchildbirth. At yahoo.com. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're good to repeat it twice. Okay, and then Katie, what is your uh, contact information? Uh, my best contact number is 314-258-4316. That's the St. Louis area code, but I do live and work in Columbia uh, and the surrounding areas. So 314-258-4316. And my email is Katie with a Y, K-A-T-Y, doula, D-O-U-L-A, at birthstrong.com. Okay, so we are at the end of our show. If, you know, please, please, please just have um, your, if you've listened to the show and you're like, oh, my gosh, I know someone having a baby and they need to listen to this, you know, or you know someone in mid-Missouri or, you know, anywhere, really, that these two ladies will be um, more than willing to do coaching. Of course, there's a fee for that, but, you know, I mean, please, the more information you have and the more you're prepared to make it a wonderful experience, the better. Okay, so this is Cindy Meyer, and um, next week, June 5th, I will be interviewing Mariah the Light Source. She's the author of Using Your White Light Angels to Find Your Life's Purpose. After that, the Bhakti Fest. And then on June 19th, I will be interviewing... um, Four different people uh, from the Dolores Cannon past uh, her her big conference, Transformation Conference, and I'll have Arun Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, on the show. Sonia Choquette is on the 26th, and so is Father Joshua, the internationally celebrated spiritual 
healer, psychic surgeon who will be at Spirit Seekers July 15th Holistic Conference. Well, I just want to thank both of you. You know, you're part of Spirit Seeker. I can't talk. Spirit Seeker every month, and I just know you're like this quiet force in Mm -hmm. helping so many women. So I just really want to thank you both for being my guests, and, you know, may, may just you continue the work and, you know, bringing blessings to so many babies and families. Well, thank you for having us. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, listeners, and make it a great week. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye.